morning we consider Psalm 143. Once again, listen now to the reading of God's holy word. A Psalm of David. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. In your faithfulness, answer me. And in your righteousness, do not enter into judgment with your servant. For in your sight, no one living is righteous. For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in darkness like those who have long been dead. Therefore, my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is distressed. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your works. I muse on the work of your hands. I spread out my hands to you. My soul longs for you like a thirsty land. Selah. Answer me speedily, O Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, lest I be like those who go down into the pit. Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning, for in you do I trust. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk, for I lift up my soul to you. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. In you I take shelter. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Your spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. Revive me, O Lord, for your name's sake. For your righteousness' sake, bring my soul out of trouble. In your mercy, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul. For I am your servant. Take the Lord's blessing on this His holy word. O gracious God and Heavenly Father, we rejoice and give thanks to you for the truth that you have revealed to us in your word, that it is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And as we come to this particular psalm this morning, this passage of your word, Father, we pray that your spirit would be with us to give us understanding and insight, and that truly as your word goes forth in the power of the spirit, we pray that it would truly find within each of our hearts that rich, fertile soil, which brings about great and abundant fruit for your glory. We ask now for your blessing upon your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Psalm 143 is considered to be the last of the penitential psalms. We already sang a couple of those psalms this morning. A penitential psalm is a psalm of of confession and repentance of sin. And in total, traditionally, at least there's uh, seven psalms, penitential psalms, that are recognized in the Psalter. But Psalm 143 is kind of interesting in that it really has no explicit reference to sin or to confession or even of repentance. Its focus is similar to many of the Psalms that we've already have considered this summer. Uh, David's unjust persecution from enemies and his, and his pleading for the Lord to bring deliverance. And so the only sin alluded to is really the unjust sin of his persecutors. <coughs> Nothing is explicitly said of David's own personal sin. Now verse 2 comes closest, but 
But there, David's not specifically referring to himself and his own condition, but is speaking very, very broadly, which certainly would include himself, but he's speaking broadly about a certain truth of all humanity. That is, because of our sin natures, no one is righteous before God. But even though there's no explicit mention of our sin or of repentance, Psalm 143 can certainly be used in such a situation where we call out to the Lord for mercy, to hear our prayer for deliverance from sin and its consequences. And we don't know the precise occasion of the psalm, but if David is enduring the persecution because of his own personal sin, which again is certainly possible, well, the psalm may have been written during David's flight from his son Absalom, who had rebelled against David and drove David out of Jerusalem and took over the throne. David certainly understood this occasion to be an outflow of the consequences of his own sin many years before when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered. The Lord, through the prophet Nathan, charged at that time in Second Samuel 12, saying, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Well, son, rising up against you and seeking to kill you certainly fits that curse. Whether David in Psalm 143 is addressing the fallout of that situation or not, his approach and a manner of prayer to the Lord gives us a good example of seeking the Lord's mercy for deliverance from sin and again, sin's consequence, even as it ultimately points us toward the Lord Jesus Christ, who endured persecution, suffering, and even death, not for his sin, but for our sin. And so David's experience uh, told here ultimately becomes Christ's experience as he suffered for our sins. Well, David begins with an overwhelming sense of desperation that leads him to cry out to the Lord, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. Now the repetition of hear and give ear isn't because David thinks God isn't going to hear him. No, it's a, it's a demonstration of the urgency of his situation, of his, of his utter dependence upon God, and of his uh, helplessness to save himself. Now, of course... We've considered this before. The all-knowing God already knows David's situation. He already knows David's needs. He already knows the answer and the relief that he will ultimately send to David. But, But when we pray to him, God desires that we still express our needs, that we express our dependence upon him, and that we express our commitment to what it is we're asking. This is what Jesus emphasized in the parable of the widow and the unjust judge in Luke 18. Remember, the widow uh, had some uh, injustice done against her, and she persistently went to this uh, unjust judge, meaning he wasn't a good judge, but she went to him time and time again in order to make her case and make her plea for justice. And eventually, the judge, because of her persistence, not because he was a good judge, but because of her, of her persistence, he relented and answered and gave her the justice that she sought. 
Well, the lesson for us in that is bringing our prayers before the Lord with persistence shows our dependence upon Him and it shows our commitment of faith. Of course, the key difference is we don't pray to an unjust judge. We pray to a righteous God who loves us and who is pleased to richly bless us. Well, this is the persistence of faith that David expresses here. We also gain a sense of David's desperation in the description of verse 4. He says, his spirit is overwhelmed and his heart is, is distressed. In other words, David senses that he's at the very end of his rope. He's close to giving up and letting this whole affliction that he's enduring just, just consume him. Yet the only thing keeping him from doing so is his faith, his hope, and his trust in the Lord God. And then finally in verse 7, David becomes even more explicit in the urgency of his his desperate state, saying, Answer me speedily, O Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, lest I shall be like those who go down into the pit. The end of the rope indeed. In fact, David is clinging to the very last fiber of the rope. So overwhelmed. David senses any delay will result in his utter destruction at the hands of his enemies. Beloved of God, in times of trouble and in the midst of distress, even such intense affliction where you sense you're you're close to giving up and, and being consumed by your troubles, even in that distress which flows from the consequences of your own sin, At such times, cry out to the Lord in faith. Cry out to Him. And acknowledge to Him uh, your own neediness, your own inability to save yourself, and make known to Him the severity of the distress that you're experiencing. For even though the Lord knows everything about your situation, as you share your needs, as you persist in your prayer, you show the Lord that your only hope and help is in Him alone. Because that's exactly where it truly is and ought to be. But as David lifts this desperate prayer for help, not only does he acknowledge his own neediness, but you note he also grounds his prayer in the solid foundation of God's perfect character. And he mentions two particular uh, Uh, characteristics or attributes of God, and there's a third that's also implied. First in verse 1, he says, In your faithfulness, answer me. David calls upon God's covenant faithfulness, His loving kindness, His everlasting mercy, that God has promised to hear and respond to the prayers of His covenant people. And because God is, is faithful... David knows his prayer will be heard and answered. But David also roots his prayer in God's righteousness. Now there are two ways that we can look at this. We can connect righteousness with the first part of verse 1. That is, David saying, you know, answer me in your faithfulness and in your righteousness. (coughs) Or we can connect it along with verse 2. In your righteousness, do not enter into judgment with your servant for in your sight no one living is righteous. Either way is possible, and in fact, both are certainly appropriate. To the first, well, 
God does what's right. And so the sense would be, Lord, answer me. I'm in distress. I'm your servant. Answer me because it's the good and the right thing to do. Indeed, you've promised that you would help and hear my prayer. The right thing to do then is to fulfill your promise by answering me. But if we connect it with verse 2, we also know that God not only does what is right, but He is righteous. That is, He's perfectly pure and good. And so note David's request in verse 2, though he says, in your righteousness, do not enter into judgment with your servant. In other words, he's saying, yes, you're righteous, but Lord, withhold the carrying out of that righteousness when it comes to my case, even, even if it's justly deserved. In other words, David is asking the Lord not to do something that the Lord, according to His holy and perfect character, must do. Bring your righteous judgment upon me for my sin. That's what God must do. And righteous judgment for sin is, is what's deserved. David acknowledges this. No one living is righteous in your sight. This is the reality of, of mankind's sinful nature. No one is righteous. No, not one. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Indeed, even our own righteousness, the prophet Isaiah says, is as filthy rags in God's sight. So whether due to a particular sin or simply by being conceived in sin, sin and coming forth from the womb speaking lies, David knows that if the Lord would justly scrutinize him and his life, well, then he would come up way short. Well, this leads to the implication of the third characteristic of God. David grounds his prayer in. Not just his faithfulness, not just his righteousness. Though the judge of all the earth will do right, Indeed, he must do right. He must judge the sin and the sinner. The Lord our God is also a God who abounds with grace and mercy toward the undeserving. Now, ultimately, it's only through Christ that we can come to the Lord in prayer. It's only in Jesus, the perfect Son of God, who came in the flesh and was tempted in all ways that we are yet without sin. It's only through His once for all sacrifice on the cross for our sins that we who are guilty before God can enter into His holy presence. Only by the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, can we call out to the Lord in prayer, pleading, for His mercy and help, even though the suffering and affliction we endure is exactly what our sin deserves. Only because of Jesus, who endured the suffering for our sin, can we plead with God to not enter into judgment against us. Because that judgment has been satisfied in Christ's own death. Beloved of God, this ought to encourage us greatly. Because truly, we all have sinned and fall short of God's glory and His standard of perfect righteousness. Even though we're sinners deserving of God's wrath and curse, we can be confident that in Christ alone, we can find grace and mercy and help in time of need. Even if the need 
is relief from the consequences of our own sin. This is the foundation of David's prayer. So what's causing this distress? Verse 3, David says, For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in darkness like those who have long been dead. Note the different layers of affliction David describes here brought on by his enemies. First, there's a physical affliction. His soul or life is being persecuted. His, his life is in danger as he's been pursued and mistreated by his enemies. So much as, as he's already feeling crushed under the heavy weight of these assaults. Now if this psalm refers to David's flight from Absalom, we, we know that his life was truly in danger from his own son. See, David was an older man at this time, and it was difficult for him to, to escape and, and be on the, on the run. Now, certainly it was bad enough when he was on the run from Saul, but at least at that time, he had youthful vigor to, to keep up the pace. And so David is now certain that life as a fugitive in his old age would surely be his end. And so there's a physical affliction. Secondly, there's a, a social affliction. He made me dwell in darkness like those who have long been dead. Those who are dead have no friends. When David fled, he had to to leave many of his family and friends behind. Remember that he had been betrayed by one of his chief counselors who sided with Absalom. (coughs) And he was also mocked and ridiculed when he was in flight by by Shimei, who was a, a relative of Saul. David was isolated and alone, even as those have long been dead. And so there was a social affliction. And thirdly, there was a spiritual affliction in verse 4. Therefore my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is distressed. David has no inner peace. He's filled with fear. He's overcome with a deep sense of, of sorrow and grief. He's, he's headed toward depression and despair because of the enemies who have risen up against him. Certainly when we are feeling oppressed, and even when our sin weighs heavily upon us, we can sense each of these kinds of afflictions, a, a, a physical affliction, a social affliction, a, and a spiritual affliction hard to bear now of course in each of these afflictions we also see Jesus and the suffering that he endured on our behalf remember Jesus himself was pursued by his enemies he was beaten, he was whipped, he was nailed to a cross and ultimately he was put to death and then the social affliction he experienced first began in the garden when he, uh, his close disciples scattered And left him all alone. And then as he was shamefully mocked by passers-by. As he hung on the cross. With no friend to bring comfort and help. And of course the spiritual affliction upon Christ. Was most intense. As his heavenly father's goodness turned away from him. And the wrath and curse of God for our sins. Was poured out upon Jesus as he hung on the cross prompting Jesus to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Friends, David's suffering here as a picture of Christ's suffering for us. And so he cries out to God for help, for deliverance and relief. Now, David's suffering is intense. And though his prayer is desperate, it's firmly grounded in the perfections of God's character, even as his prayer itself was. And this begins to encourage David, and his confidence builds as he focuses his attention on the power and the grace of God to save and deliver. And he begins by remembering. In verse 5, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your works. I muse on the work of your hands. Now when David says that he remembers the days of old, he's not doing as we may do, pine for the, and long for the good old days when things were seemingly simpler, more comfortable, or more prosperous. Certainly if we look at David's life, we know that there really was never such a time anyway where that fit. But that's not what David's doing here. He's not just wistfully pining for the good old days. No, his thought here is that he remembers. He remembers from his own life. He remembers from the history of Israel. He remembers even from the beginning of the world. He remembers all the great and mighty things God has done. He not only remembers them, but he meditates on all God's works and deeds. Perhaps he remembers how the Lord spared him from Saul. Or maybe he's remembering the victory that the Lord gave him over the giant Goliath. He may be recalling God's saving his people from slavery and bondage in Egypt with a, a mighty hand and bringing them into the promised land. David remembers all these great works of God. He also remembers the sovereign power of God to create all things in the space of six days. He muses about the works of God's hands, the the intricacies of the human body, the the diversity of the creatures of the earth, the natural cycles of the sun and the moon and the tides and the power of the wind and the sea. All these things God has created and they're wonderful things. And David remembers them. Recalling these great works reassures David that God the Lord, even His God, even our God, has the power to save and deliver from any foe or enemy. Nothing is too great for our God to accomplish. Not only does He have this power, but He also delights in exercising that power in order to deliver His people. What a glorious remembrance. Brothers and sisters, this ought to be our remembrance in our time of need. As we look back remembering, wondering and meditating upon all the great works of God that we see in our own lives, that we can see in the world around us, that we can see in God's Word. And we can be encouraged in the midst of our distress. But David doesn't just go through a mental exercise of remembering His remembrance of God's deeds leads him to actively seek out the Lord all the more. And the transition from verse 5 to verse 6 demonstrates this rather beautifully. He says, I muse on the work of your hands, as I spread out my hands to you. In an act of worship and an expression of humility and neediness, David stretches out his hands to the Lord. Because God can accomplish much with his hands. Not that God literally has hands, but you understand the figurative sense. God can accomplish much. But David's saying, I can do nothing. 
I can do nothing with my hands. I can do nothing to save and deliver myself. I can do nothing, but the only thing I can do is to lift my hands in prayer, seeking the Lord's mercy and help. Seeking the Lord, thirsting for Him, as a drought-stricken land thirsts for rain. And we are quite familiar with that kind of example. Think about that, right? Remember, Selah, pause and think about that. Remember what the Lord has done. Remember what the Lord has done in your life, how he, what He has revealed in the Scriptures about all that He has done. Remember what He has done and then seek Him earnestly with your whole heart and soul in the midst of your troubles. This is what David does. He's gained confidence now to, to seek the Lord even more deeply. But then verse 7, there's the reality that he's still in the midst of the present distress. He's clinging to the Lord with every fiber of his being. But he acknowledges his weakness and that he's failing. Indeed, if the Lord would so much as, as look away from him, even for a very brief moment, David knows he would be lost and he would be consumed by the pit of death. Beloved of God, do we not find here the echo of the words of our Lord on the cross? David says here, do not hide your face from me. And what does Christ call out from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now there's one key difference though. The Lord didn't hide his face from David. He did deliver David. He did defeat Absalom's rebellion and David was, re was restored to the throne. Yet because of our sin. Because of our transgressions, the Heavenly Father hid His face from His Son, His only begotten Son, His beloved Son, and poured out upon Him the wrath and the curse that only we deserved. Jesus, our Savior, was brought down to the pit of death in our place so that we might even now call out to God in prayer with great confidence and assurance. Finally, as David has this confidence, he then lays forth his petitions in verses 8-12. through 12. And Like the opening of his prayer, and like the confidences that he reassured himself with, these petitions are also grounded in the character of God and the promises that flow from them. First in verse 8, he says, Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning, for in you do I trust. His petition is that he wants to hear God's loving kindness. Not show, not see, not feel, but hear. We hear God's loving kindness through the revelation of His Word. And the focus on God's attribute of loving kindness or His covenant faithfulness again tells us that David wants to hear again the promises of God's Word. His covenant promises that He's made. That the Lord would establish David's throne forever. And that He would build His people into a great nation that would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And because God is a faithful covenant God, is a God in whom we can trust to keep the promises that He's made.
And David here expresses complete trust in the Lord. And as he desires to be comforted by the revelation of God's word, he trusts that God will be faithful. Secondly, David prays for wisdom to discern the will of God. The second part of verse 8, Cause me to know the way in which I should walk, for I lift up my soul to you. Again, the Lord has promised to give wisdom to those who faithfully seek after it. And David here humbly submits himself to the will of God as the Lord gives wisdom and reveals it to him. Mind in Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. And the fear of the Lord is shown by reverencing Him, by humbling ourselves before Him, by lifting up our souls to Him and trusting Him with our very lives. Indeed, this is what we do when we seek to follow and walk in the ways of the Lord. We can search the Scriptures and find knowledge and wisdom and understanding to know how the Lord would have us to live. And we're called to then commit ourselves to that by submitting our wills to His most holy and perfect will. And so this is David's petition. His third petition is to be delivered from his enemies in verse 9. Again, David's in a, he's in a very bad spot. As we've already considered, obviously he doesn't want to stay there. And so he specifically asked the Lord to save and to deliver him. And he grounds this petition in the truth and the promise of God to be our shelter, to be a place of strength and refuge, to be one who watches over and protects us from the assault of the enemy, to protect us from the darts of the evil one, to protect us from the trials and the storms of life that may come upon us to be a safe haven. And with the Lord as a shelter and place of refuge, David is assured that his petition of deliverance will be granted. Fourthly, in verse 10, he says, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Now what good is it to know God's will if you're not going to do God's will? And this is David's desire. He he doesn't want mere knowledge He wants to do the will of God so that his life is conformed to true godliness. In essence, he's desiring obedience. But David, especially at the present time, again, he can't do anything. He's helpless. And furthermore, he knows that his natural inclination is to obey and serve himself. And so he acknowledges that he needs God's sustaining grace and strength through the Holy Spirit to teach and instruct him how to do the will of God. And he grounds his petition in the reality of his covenant relationship with the Lord, saying, You are my God. And this is at least half of that familiar covenant language. I will be your God and you will be my people. God has staked a claim on David's life. He has staked a claim on Israel as his people. And here David confirms that by staking his claim on the Lord, God. He's engaged in this covenant with God. And if the Lord is his God, then he truly wants to conform his life to God's will and true obedience that he might please and glorify him above all things. A fifth petition is in the second part of verse 10. Your spirit is good to lead me in the land of uprightness. Here David prays to the Lord to lead him with purpose. Lead him on a level path, a path without obstacles and pitfalls, a path of righteousness that leads ultimately to the land of uprightness. 
It's the perfect plan and purpose of God to lead His people on such a path to such a glorious place. Ultimately, to the eternal upright land and the glory of His heavenly presence. The straight and narrow way. The way that we know is mocked and scorned by the world, but it is the right way and it is the good way that David desires, that we ought to desire. And David roots this petition for purpose in the very goodness of God. The Lord is good, and all He does is for the good and blessing of His people. Truly, David's trust here is the promise of God that the Apostle Paul expresses in Romans 8.28, all things work together for good for those who love God and have been called according to His purpose. That God has called David and and given him and us a a purpose. A purpose to serve and and glorify him in all that we do. God will bring us to that point. He will fulfill that purpose in us. He will accomplish it for his glory and for our good. Why? Because God himself is good. And he does good. And he wants good for his people. David also petitions the Lord for his life to be spared at the hands of his enemies. In verse 11, Revive me, O Lord, for your name's sake. For your righteousness' sake, bring my soul out of trouble. David has already mentioned that he's as good as dead. He knows the Lord can revive and bring life to him and spare him from what seems to be a sure and certain end. But note David doesn't justify himself. He doesn't claim that his life should be spared for his own sake or because of his own righteousness. He's not saying, look, I'm a good guy. You should save me. No. He says, but for the name of the Lord and for his righteousness, David desires to be spared. Now this stems from the truth of the promise the Lord has made to David. Indeed, that if David, if David's enemies would gain victory, well then they would claim victory over David's God. The very God whom David boldly and unashamedly declared before all. And so for David to be spared, God's name would be glorified. For David to be defeated would be give cause for the enemies of God to disparage and blaspheme his name. Well, David's final petition comes in verse 12. He says, In your mercy, cut off my enemies. And destroy all those who afflict my soul. For I am your servant. David calls for God's justice to be meted out against his enemies. They put him in darkness. He's near to death and he wants God to to cut them off and destroy them. Now whenever we come across the imprecations or curses in the Psalms, it can be a challenge for us to grasp and apply the truth that's here. But David, as the Lord's anointed king, has been overwhelmed with attacks by the enemy. And calling God to execute justice and to bring these enemies to an end, to bring their wicked deeds to an end, that they would cease, all this is certainly acceptable. But the other challenge we find here in verse 12, I meant to say that all this is acceptable and certainly is not uh, something that we should be offended by. But there's another challenge in verse 12. 
because David roots this petition for justice, not in the fact that we might think that God is just and righteous, and indeed he is, but David roots it in his abounding grace and mercy, right? He says, in your mercy cut them off and destroy my enemies. Well, how can this be? Mercy and justice don't, they seem to conflict. They don't seem to go hand in hand. In fact, it's only, it's, this is one of the great errors of our day that, that Christians, uh, many Christians will exalt the love and mercy of God far above His justice and His holiness. Because they don't think they have anything to do with one another. Some will say that even the God of the Old Testament is not the same as the God of the New Testament because the God of the Old Testament is just and He's holy and He's filled with anger and wrath. But the God of the New Testament is grace and mercy and love and compassion. And so they pit God against Himself. That is a grievous error. But here David, through the Holy Spirit, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David testifies that mercy and justice do go together, and they go together in perfect harmony. For when we call to the Lord for mercy, we often want Him to save us from something. To save us from evil. To save us from sin, from Satan's temptations, from the persecutions of the, of the wicked. We want the evil, the suffering, and the persecutions to stop. We don't want to endure it. We want God's mercy to stop it and bring it to an end. And if God would be merciful to us and save and deliver us, well then He must bring justice down upon the wicked. Otherwise, if God let the wicked enemies go free and allowed them to escape His judgment, think about it, He, he wouldn't be a very good God. He wouldn't be a holy and righteous God. He wouldn't be a God who abounds in grace, love, and mercy. Indeed, He wouldn't be a God at all. Mercy requires justice. But mercy in administering justice can be understood in another way here. Because as God brings judgment down upon sin and sinners... We know that he may be pleased if it is his will and his plan and his purpose from all uh, from before the foundations of the world. He may be pleased to use that judgment to bring some of those to himself. That is, through his judgment, mercy would come to undeserving sinners and enemies of God. We're reminded of this in David's final confession here. For I am your servant. Friends, David was a sinner. In Psalm 51, he talks about how he was conceived in sin and came forth from the womb speaking lies. But even in his life, he was a sinner. He was undeserving of God's grace and mercy. Indeed, his sin in the Bathsheba incident only magnified just how unworthy David was. And yet he truly was God's servant. He was the Lord's anointed king to reign over his people. He was the one God honored as a man after his own heart. See, but David was a servant of God, not by merit, not because he earned it, but he was a servant by, of God by grace alone. Beloved of God, this is precisely what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, the true servant of the Lord. 
the just judgment of God, the judgment that we deserved, it fell upon Jesus so that we might receive mercy. The mercy that we would receive required justice. It required the satisfaction for sins. The satisfaction for our sin. Our sin needed needed that justice. God would not be good if He did not punish our sin. But in order to receive that mercy, that justice had to be poured out somewhere. And it was poured out upon Jesus, the very Son of God, for our sakes. The judgment we deserved fell upon Him so that we might receive mercy, so that we might receive the forgiveness of our sins and peace with God and an everlasting hope. Beloved, mercy meant justice in perfect harmony at the cross in Christ Jesus. Beloved, this is the glorious truth of the Gospel, right? This is what makes the Gospel such good news is that we don't have to endure the curse and wrath of God for our sins because Jesus was merciful and He endured that wrath and curse for us in our place. That's why we rejoice always in the Gospel. And the truth of this Gospel then assures us that if we're in Christ, if we call upon Him and humble ourselves before Him, confess our sins before Him, that we might be washed and cleansed by His shed blood on the cross. And when we cry out to the Lord, Lord, hear my prayer. Even if that prayer comes at a time when we are enduring the consequences for our own sin, when we cry out that prayer, Lord, hear my prayer. We know because of what Jesus has done that He will surely hear and answer our prayer for our good and to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. O gracious God in heaven, we do rejoice and give thanks for the gospel. It is, Lord, it's such good news. And we are humbled by it. That in order for us to receive mercy, your justice, your perfect justice needed to be satisfied. But instead of us going to the cross, your own beloved Son, Jesus, went in our place willingly, desiring to serve you and to serve us. He went to the cross and endured that wrath and curse for our sins. So that in in the carrying out of your perfect justice, abounding grace and mercy is poured out upon undeserving sinners such as we are. Lord, it doesn't get any better than that. We have no greater reason to give praise and thanks to your holy name than for this gospel truth. And we do praise you and we do thank you Because we know without it, without your grace, without the perfect character that you have revealed to us in your word, that we would be crushed. We would have been crushed long ago by our trials and our troubles, by our sin. 
So we praise You and thank You, O God, for having such mercy upon us, such mercy that we do not deserve, and yet we praise You and thank You for it. And we ask, Father, that especially as we consider these truths, that You would help us to remember these things as we look to Your Word and as we study Your Word, and that as we remember, as we read and hear your word revealed to us that your spirit would apply these truths to our hearts truly, sincerely, drawing us all closer to yourself, that we might all call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and be saved from our sins, that we might enter into that land of uprightness in your glorious and holy presence with this fullness of joy forever and ever and ever. We pray for your blessing upon us in these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.